The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents Setting the Record Straight, where various Christian Reconstructionist pastors seek to understand and dissect the issues that are plaguing the church today, from the pulpit to the pew. Um, but we're going to talk about the tale of two, the tale of two abusive ditches. And as I said this morning, prior before coming online, I, I did. I wanted y'all to know that I don't know if we'll finish or not, but I'm gonna try. And if you'll stay up with me, I'm gonna try to. I try to make the blanks as simple as possible. I try to do all that so we can get the message out. Today's sermon sermon is no happenstance. It's uh, but an intentional response uh, to specific statements, beliefs, or opinions under the ruse of individual Christian liberty, or and or as the answer to abuses. We all know that there have been abuses in churches, there's no doubt, but, but how we answer those has to do with something else. And I'm an advocate for the priesthood of all believers. I believe, honestly, that we all have the Holy Spirit, and that, and that every believer has the Holy Spirit and is to be led by the Holy Spirit. Yet, the Holy Spirit is not divided. He is God. If he were to be divided, he ceased to be God. When I'm talking about he is not divided, he doesn't go and tell one person one thing and then contradict himself over here. That's what I mean. What it's, when it comes to these type of things, this one logical truth, when it comes to a subject like this, we can both be wrong, but we can't both be right. And I'm okay with someone saying, you know, if we'll enter that... That, that discussion on this subject in that place. We could both be wrong, but we can't both be right. The difference is, is our starting point, where we start, is important for us. Where we start is extremely important for us, right? Because uh, ultimately it's God's word that is to win out. So I can have a discussion over passages of Scripture, but God's Word better be the one that wins out. When it comes to us answering these things, when it comes to the subject of the church, individual believers, elders, overseers, and the like, we don't have free warrant to overextend jurisdiction, and we don't get to reinvent the will either. Today we'll be using Paul's letters. And if anybody saw my post earlier this week, I... I, I went through, and I've been reading through every one of Paul's letters, sifting through and sifting through words and just what is said specifically, very simply on the on the top. We've been talking about the difference between descriptive and prescriptive texts. So I'm understanding, making sure that when I look at something, I'm, I'm looking at something as descriptive of, of a situation or something, or is it prescriptive, what God has prescribed for us to do. And so as we do... Um, if you at least look at it, uh, Paul's letters make up the majority of the New Testament. And so we want I wanted to do this so we could show a consistent view. So we're going to start here. If there are two ditches, there must be one main road. There's going to be two ditches. We You can go down in front of my house right now, and the, the road has a ditch on each side, doesn't it? And they're going to go parallel. They're going to go stay parallel with the road, basically. There's a ditch on either side. So if there's going to be two ditches, 
there's going to be at least one main road. And that's A. Go ahead and put it up there. There is one road to salvation. Now, I think consistency is the most important part of this discussion this morning. Consistency. There's one main road to salvation. John 14, 6, and then on in 15 and 17, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And on that, it goes on in verse 15, it says, If you love me, you'll keep my commands, commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he'll give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. There is a specific, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It goes on in John 10, if prior to that, and you were to look at this, Jesus says what? That he is the one gate, the one door. He's the true shepherd. You remember that? And that's why I said I can, I can, so there's one shepherd. There's not multiple shepherds to get you to heaven. There's one way, and it's very consistent regarding salvation. I told you I'm going to go fast, right? B, if there's one road to salvation, there's one avenue avenue to God's purpose. Now, we're not talking about giftedness here. I want to talk about the difference between that, if we could, just for a moment. We're not talking about God's different gifts. There's one avenue to God's purpose. God's purpose is not found in us. I want to be very clear. There's a passage of Scripture that gets used so often in evangelical churches, and it's Jeremiah 29, 11 through 13. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you. Plans for wherever, I know, the, I know another translation is by memory. Plans for your welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. He tells you, I have plans for you. Who's Who has plans? God has plans for us, right? He has very distinct plans for us. He has a very distinct purpose for us. We told in 2 Timothy 3 that all Scripture is breathed out by God. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We're told that God not only has a purpose, He has a plan for our lives, but also that what? He has given us the way to know His plan, know how to apply His purpose for our lives. He gives us His word so that what? In all things, at all times, we can be trained up to be for every purpose He has, every thing that he has i think about john 17 john 17 is a beautiful thing because jesus is praying for those who are there amongst him at that time and i know i'm kind of i'm kind of skimming over some things but john 17 he talks about that he prays for them and he prays for who whom else those who would believe their message those who had become disciples. That, and if you want to look at that message, how far it goes, it's not just those people in the first century. We're talking about coming down to us. And he prays this prayer and he says, I pray 
that not that you take them out of this world, but you keep them from the evil one. He, he, tell, he prays this prayer, his purpose, that you keep them on track. Just as I am one with you, Father, then they are in me and I am one with them, that we might all, but what the whole point is, is what? That they will continue in the love that we have for one another, but that we would continue in that purpose. And, and like I said, this is just a general overview. So there's one road to salvation, there's one avenue to God's purpose, and there's one people of God. Very familiar to us to hear this. There's one people of God. In John 10, 16, he says, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. So we're not having people of God, multiple peoples of God, going two different, two different directions. That's why we talk about that the, that the Israelites are not God's people. The Jews today are not God's people because they blaspheme his name. They blaspheme the very one he sent to save them from sin. Now people might say, well, no, 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 no. He, they, they just haven't believed yet. Upon, listen, the Jews have believed. All of his disciples were Jews. Men from every nation gathered together. And what happened? They believed upon Jesus. Thousands upon thousands came to know him in the first century. They were not just converts. They were from there in Jerusalem and on. We know this for a fact. There's one people of God and this people are a chosen people. We find that in 1 Peter 2, which we quote almost, almost all the time, but... You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into a marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It all comes, if you take in this route, before we can go on to talk about the two ditches, there's one way to salvation. There's one path to God's purpose for the one people of God. So let's talk about the ditches. The first ditch has to do with the abuse of authority. I'm going to go ahead and get that out of the way because that's almost uh, almost the first response that uh, people, many people that travel my circles or whether it be on social media or beyond, they, they always want to talk about abuse of authority. And rightfully so, there's, there's plenty of it, but it comes in different avenues, and that's what we're going to talk about. The abuse of authority. R.J. Rushney said, All authority in Scripture, and y'all have heard these quotes, and I'm, I've done it intentionally. We've, I'm keeping these quotes in front of us. All authority in Scripture and all obedience is from God and to God. All false doctrines seek to displace authority and obedience from God to man. With every man his own God and law, authority collapses. This is the consequence of explicit humanism. Implicit humanism maintains a godly facade but makes human authority central. The greatest human authority is by virtue of his position and power all the more under God's authority than lesser men. The obedience of, of an Aaron and a Moses is more critical than that of an insignificant herdsman because their authority affects more people. Authority gives only godly privileges, and it gives and requires great responsibilities. Remember ending on this last week? I want us to think about this as we move forward. Well, A, 
Authority is not established by power, but by service. And these are familiar things that we've said, but we need to take this and, and set the stage, you want to say. Authority is not established by power, but by service. That's A. Matthew 20, verses 25 through 28, Jesus called to his disciples and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many." Whether we want to look at it or not, that passage of Scripture does not say that there will not be people in authority. It does not say that. It says the greatest among you will be the servant of all. So those who are great are called to serve. And that's what we're saying. Authority is not established by power. It's not established by might. It's established by service. And why is that? In the, in the kingdom of God, why is that? 1 Timothy 3, 1-7 talks about this very, I underline this, just simply, verse 1. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, here's the thing. If someone is going to be an overseer, slash elder, slash bishop, slash whatever you want to call it, they ought to desire it. Now, what I mean by desire is they should not do it because someone else said, you know, you would make a good elder. You would make a good leader. You would make a good preacher. It's not because someone says you would make this. They ought to desire that thing. Now, I will say this. I have not met many godly men who, when they look at these, these uh, qualifications or characteristics that follow that, I'm, very few of them, when I've talked to them about coming and being a part of leading in the church or, or on those lines, they go, they all look at it and they go, man, I don't see that in myself. Very few people that I hear go, you know what? That describes me perfectly. Very few are that way. Why? Because they recognize they know their faults better than we do, don't they? They know their shortcomings. And, and humility is a good thing. Uh, selfish ambition and Pride are not good things to see in a leader. Someone who is going to especially lead in the church. I find it interesting that if anyone, anyone aspires to the office of see, overseer, he desires a noble task. There's a lot of characteristics, and we'll get to that in just a moment. In Titus 1, verses 5-9, through 9, it says, This is why, why you were left in Crete, that, so, in Crete, he's telling Titus, Paul's telling Titus, so that you might put what remained in order and... Appoint elders in every town as I directed you. It gives, it gives the the characteristics, and it says, as an overseer is as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent. All these characteristics. These things are not. These things are not based upon. If you watch this, if you listen to those things, and you read those scriptures. These characteristics are not based upon someone's ability to rule over others by power, but it's how they serve one another. And one of the biggest parts of this, if you remember this, is that he must be a family. He must be able to take care of his family well. 
or he can't take care of the church. In 1 Peter 5, he says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. He says, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. But what kind of oversight? Not under compulsion, not because you have to, but willingly. Not domineering over in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And if you if you have an expectation, if someone if a leader has had the expectation that his flock is to serve the kingdom of God, what would his example be? Serving the kingdom of God. See, I believe that just because someone claims the title of elder, overseer, pastor, teacher, bishop, <laughs> sorry, chaplain, priest, go on, or whatever you want to call it, this does not man- demand authority. A title does not demand authority. Authority is based on the individual's history of service, not in how he rules. In fact, someone who is overbearing is disqualified. A person called by God and set apart by God will be recognized by man. That is the reasoning behind all the character descriptions given in these passages. These are character descriptions that men will be able to see in this individual. It also would be able to say this is what does not allow for him to serve. This is what this is what disqualifies him or qualifies him. B authority not only is authority not established by power but by service, but authority is to be honored based on this service. See, it's not by the power it's not by the position. It's not by the title. It's a it's it's honestly one of the reasons why I think I've shared with you before. I I go to I went to do a funeral and I always asked them they, it was fine if they said I was pastor Pastor Trawick or whatever. I I could not stand when someone would use the word reverend. And it's just, it's a it's a personal thing because it's not that it's because I don't view it as someone as man should not be revered. That's a name. That's a title that's above and beyond. It's not a reverend is is not um, is not appropriate in my opinion. Now someone else might be fine with that, but it's just not for me. Um, it's a dis- character description, but it's not a it's not a uh, it's not a entitlement of a, a title of a of a of a purpose or a call of God. Romans 13, we all know this, and I'm going to do it intentionally. It's not about pastors or authorities in the church, but it talks about authority. It says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now, when it talks about these civil magistrates, is what we would say this talks about. It says, rulers are not a terror for good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear for the one who is in authority? Then do what is good. And I'm not going to go into the fullness of this, but I want you to understand that there is no authority that exists that God did not institute. Now, is there ungodly authority out there? Absolutely. 
are there institutions that God intended but are ungodly now? Are, are being, they're being ruled or run by ungodly men? Yes. What happens then? Do we, do we just automatically bow down to all those things just because God instituted the, the position, therefore we're just going to do whatever they say? Absolutely not. You're responsible before God. Huh? Yeah, you got to what? Get rid of all of them? <laughs> you don't get, do you get rid of the do you get rid of the position? That's what this message is kind of about. Do you get rid of the position? No, you get rid of the ungodly. It might take time, huh? Yes. But we judge we judge these people by what they do, and when they don't do it as righteous, we don't turn around and vote for them because you know when most things are righteous. But on these issues, ah, we're just going to let them go by. Ultimately, when we look at authority, authority is to be honored based upon the service. I'm not talking about that we lift men up, but we need to honor the position that God places there, not based upon the position, but based upon the service. There are times when I have to, I've had to yield to others, not based upon their title, but because they're a better example of service in that area than I am. And they have authority where I have lacked it. It had nothing to do with title. Never had to do nothing with employment or vocation. First Timothy says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. Honestly believe that this passage of scripture says that an elder can't be rebuked. That's what I believe this passage is talking about. Honestly. But if they talk about when you bring a charge against an elder, what are you supposed to do? Have two or three witnesses. They're supposed to be those who rule who, who rule well. It's interesting they put that. Consider double honor, especially those who whose uh, labor in preaching and teaching. Galatians six six says, "Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches." We ask you, brothers, in 1 Thessalonians 5.12, respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Now, I'm, I'm giving you these things because not because I, I'm asking for a pay increase. So I'm not asking for you to double my, my salary of zero. Um, I, I'm, I'm not saying that. What I want you to understand is that honor... Authority is to be honored based on service, not based upon force or title. For yourselves in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, it talks about... Um, he talks about just as we have been approved by God and entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a, a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we though we could have made demands as uh, or 
uh, as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also ourselves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked day, night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. And I find it powerful to see in this passage of scripture that there, the part of the honor has to do with the service that a, an elder is not to be someone who seeks in any way to demand that honor, but also he becomes not a burden to the people. He shouldn't be a burden. They said they worked night and day in order to not become a burden. Second Thessalonians 3 it says, it says to keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not accorded with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor do we get anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we don't have that right, but to give you in you give you in ourselves an example to imitate. If anyone, it's the saying goes on, if anyone is not willing to work, he shall not eat. One of the most powerful things that we can look at and say that no pastor, no elder, no one in responsible for the church or the local gathering should do anything, should just rest on the laurels of his title, but that he should serve and work accordingly for the kingdom in such a way in order to receive all that he has. Why? Because as we read in that Rushdie quote, the greatest human authorities by virtue of his position and power all the more under God's authority than lesser men. Why? Because their, their authority affects more people. Authority gives, though, only godly privileges, and it gives and requires great responsibilities. So if you notice, I haven't talked so far about the abuses of this authority, and there's a reason. What I have left for you so far is what authority is to look like, right? See, once we know what biblical authority looks like we are, we, and how we are to respond to it, then it is much easier to spot abuses and how we respond to them. Authority is an objective standard. It's outside of us. It's not a subjective one. It's determined by God at His Word. Authority is not based upon what we think or what we desire. Authority is based upon God at His Word. And so when you have an abuse, you're going to find you can recognize it and you know how to respond. If a Roman 13 type of abuse happens, we just we just talked about that. What happens? We don't submit to that authority. Because we can't. Well, one of the reasons why I've approached it this way, okay, I want to share with you why. My boy Aaron, and I've said this several times, years ago, come to me talking about Pokemon and Minecraft and all this other stuff. And I was looking at it, I was like, I don't care about that stuff. 
I, I just I think it's a waste of your time. It's a waste. And he looks at me and says something like this. He goes, Dad, I know you're against everything I like, but what are you for? And what happens is so much, and it's, it's, been, it's been attributed to many people I know that we're not Christian reconstructionists, but we're Christian deconstructionists. And I'm starting to believe that they're right on some avenues. Because we tear down everything, but we're building nothing. We're against everything, but what are we for? And sometimes those things we were against are detailed in God's word that we ought to be for. But because of man's abuses, we destroy it all. We throw it all out. And so I, I, I stay in this place, and I, and I look at this, and it leads me to the second ditch. And I didn't think I'd get here, but I, got, I can do it in 15 minutes or so. The second ditch is the abuse by omission. The second ditch is the abuse by omission. What do I mean by that? Well, I'm going to set you up with another Russian quote we've seen, and I want us to see it very clearly. He says, All too commonly on the current scene, contempt for godly authority is seen as a mark of intellectual and religious freedom. Every church today faces a crisis in that godly authority is replaced by ungodly authoritarianism, which is what we just talked about, abuses, and anarchism. Rebellion frequently parades under the banner of righteous indignation and protest. Given the prevalence of ungodly authoritarianism in the church and state, how do we contend against such an evil? Well, I'm not going to talk about the abuses of the church or of those in authority. I want to talk about the other ditch, the abuse of omission. See, godly authority is not to be omitted because of those who abuse that responsibility. You have the responsibility to, to, to not recognize illegitimate authority and to call said person to repentance. It doesn't matter who that person is. That's why people have the right to call a Billy Graham to repentance when Billy Graham was wrong. And he was wrong on multiple counts, believe it or not. That's why you can call John MacArthur's and Douglas Wilson's and you can call R.C. Sproul's. You can call all these great theologians. They're inconsistent. And so was Rush Dooney. On multiple areas, Rush Dooney was inconsistent. And you got to call it out and say, you got to deny, you can't deny it. When someone's inconsistent, I, and I'll tell you, every person in this room is inconsistent at some point in time. That does not make it right. But to delegitimize all godly and biblical authority because of past abuse is abuse in itself. It's as if one is saying that because there has been abuse in marriages in the past, we're not going to acknowledge the necessity or the call of God to marry, making all marriages illegitimate and obsolete. I'll even take it once a few steps further. And this is one of my arguments, and somebody can call it a straw man if you want. But if you no longer believe in the legitimate authority because there's been abuses, then I can go around and anybody can say, well, I don't believe in abortion. 
I don't think it's real. I think it's all gone. No, but it's not happening anymore. Rather than do something about it. I don't believe in rape. Rape doesn't happen. It never happens anymore. You see what you can do? You can easily, in your mind, write something off. But there's a legitimate things, and a good example of legitimate authority. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 through 22, and we're going to we'll go to this more than once. But he says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and who over you in the Lord and admonish you, and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. But be at peace among yourselves, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good with one another. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Don't quench the spirit. Don't despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. No matter what happens regarding abuses in authority within the church, we don't get to omit that very authority. What do we do? We call it, call that individual to repentance. We walk forward and call them to the standard of God's word. See, why I say that is, A, and this is what we're finishing up, these last few points. A, anarchy and rebellion is not the answer to authoritarian abuse. That's a bunch of, I'll leave that one up there for you. Anarchy and rebellion is not the answer to authoritarian abuse. How do I know what an authoritarian abuse is? What is that? It's what we were talking about the opposite side. When someone takes and claims their title, their appointment, or what have you, is a reason for you to listen and do everything they say. We know that is not the truth. The standard is their power and the authority that they have. It's not by power. The authority they have is based upon their service and their ability to serve and how they serve. As called and, and as they live by the very obedience, obedience to the commands and the characteristics that God has called them to in Christ Jesus. What is anarchy? Now, I, I'm going to tell you, there's all kinds of definitions of anarchy. Now, I can break the word down, and, and some want to break it down and say an, uh, an means non, arco or archi, has to do with uh, hierarchy or no structure, no 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 structure that's uh, devised. You know, it, isn't it interesting, interesting that that word anarchy, I thought it was kind of a, a newer word. Um, I looked it up to see if it was in that 1828 Webster's Dictionary, and lo and behold, there was. It's a word that's been in use for well over a hundred years. Going on um, almost how many years? Almost 200. Anarchy is want, this is the word, want of government, not meaning I want government. It's the want of a government, a state or society, when there, where, when there is no law or supreme power. Or when the laws are not efficient and individuals do what they please with impunity. It says political confusion. That's more than that. It's a type of government or the want of, I mean, it lacks government. It's a state or society where there's no law or supreme power. 
Let me ask you a question. Whether it's a, well, I don't even ask it. I'm going to go ahead and say this. Whether it is a nation under God's law or not, it's still a theocracy. And the reason why, it's either the God of man or, the, or God himself rules. It's a standard of God or it's a standard of man. No matter what. And so anarchy and rebellion are not the answer to authoritarian abuse. Now, do we allow for those abuses to continue to happen? No. Just as if I if I knew someone was if I knew someone was molesting their children, I'm not going to sit back and go, you know what? It's in God's hands. I'm gonna take action. Um, oh man, uh, I'm just gonna pray for that family. Dear God, do something. Send someone to help them. No, we are to respond. Romans 13 tells us there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Yes! We don't rebel against authority just because there's been abuse and throw all authority out because there's been abuse. What do we do? We stand and speak truthfully, and y'all remember, I'm not going to quote the whole thing, but y'all remember in Acts chapter 5 that that Peter and John and all of them were brought before the Sanhedrin or what have you, and and that man, they're, they're wanting to, because they've been healing in Jesus' name, and what does he say? <laughs> this man, Gamaliel, stands up, and there's some things he says. He said, in the pretense, present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it'll fail. But it's of, if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. See, the thing is, is if something is of God, and it doesn't matter what it is, if it's truly of God, it doesn't matter how much rebellion you do, you're not going to find yourself rebelling against man. You're rebelling against God, and it will fail. You will not be on the side of victory on this one. Even when we look at the present time, and you see an abuse, an authoritarian abuse, where someone is abusing their power or their authority, throwing it all out, it's not going to stand. It will. What you, if you rebel against all authority, it will fail. I'm not saying stand not stand against those who are who are wrong. I'm saying that if we throw it out and we rebel against what God has established, it will not stand. It will fail, and you will fail with it. See, B, abuse does not give permission to redefine terms and obligations. Abuse in the church or anywhere else does not give us the right, the permission, to redefine terms and obligations. While you're writing that down, it was once said, someone said, I have no creed but Christ. And while the intent of this self-pious denunciation of, was of all creeds and confessions, but in and of itself, the statement is itself a creed. The statement itself is a creed. I believe Christ is the head. I have no head. I have no creed but Christ. But he is my creed. That means I have belief. 
in Christ. It's what's called a self-refuting fallacy. It, it, it just, it's, it's a very simple thing. So, therefore, for someone to say, I have no head but Christ, no king but Jesus, while in itself is a true statement, I can say to someone, I don't pledge allegiance to the fat flag because of what because I because I believe it's it, it, it violates the first and second commandments that's my that's where I stand on it I don't pledge an oath to anyone or allegiance to anyone but Christ but we can say I I have no head but Christ no king but Jesus but that doesn't mean ultimately what the intent uh, of what they're trying to de- to make it of denouncing all other heads or leaders over them why is that? This doesn't mean that all other heads are illegitimate. Why? How so? Just because Jesus is the king of our lives does not mean that others are illegitimate. I'm not saying that they're equal to Christ either. Well, all authorities that are recognized by Christ, by his appointment, by God's word, cannot be delegitimized by simple redefining of terms by man. I believe that's what R.J. Rushdie was called abstractionism. Taking an abstract idea and leaving everything in the abstract world because in reality, and why, and I'll say this, or what I could call abstract humanism. Or, quote-unquote, Christian humanism. See, under the auspices of Christian liberty and the priesthood of all believers under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, these individuals subjectively, humanistically, define or redefine particular ideas found in Scripture to fit a particular held view or desire or try and combat a particular error by their own means. And what that talks about is, is simply this. I'm going to redefine terms in order to make them work for me. Because there's been error somewhere, I'm going to redefine the terms to make it work in my, my concept. Or, I struggle with these areas, and I want to rebel against it. I'm in rebellion against it. But instead of admitting I'm in rebellion against this, I'm going to what? I'm going to redefine the terms wholeheartedly. Romans 12, verses 3 through 13 says, For the by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given us, us, so let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Every one of us, every one of us does not fulfill all these areas. In fact, we go into the body of, if we look at the body of Christ more fully in 1 Corinthians 12, it says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many uh, are the one body, so it is with Christ. And one of my favorite parts of this, if you go on with this over to verse 21, the eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. 
ears can't say things. No part of the body can't say, you are dispensable. Whether that is someone who is a pastor, teacher, elder in the church, or any or anyone else in the church, we can't say we don't need each other. In fact, we need each person to be exactly where they're at to fulfill what the body of Christ is supposed to be and do. In fact, what's powerful about this passage of scriptures in verse 27, he said, or verse 28, he said, God apported in these church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles and gifts of healing, helping, administrating in various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess the gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you still in a more excellent way, and you know what's going to come next. He talks about how love, the impact of love of Christ. See, it's anarchy and rebellion against God for us to call what God has set forth as wrong, sinful, and unnecessary for any reason. Means we step into the place in the in the in the throne of God and say these things are not godly when He's instituted them. It's wrong for those in authority to say of the other parts of the body that they don't need them, just as much as it is wrong for any part of the other part of the body to say they don't need those God-given authorities. This leads us into this last, I say, exhaustive point which is similar to what we talked about and finished with last week, but it's not. There may be no clergy-lady divide, but there is a clergy-lady distinction. Based on that previous point, we can't move the goalposts regarding the definitions and distinctions given in Scripture in order to fit our subjective arguments. And we cannot simply redefine terms and say they are biblical just because there has been abuses in the past. There's two passages of scriptures, and I'm going I'm to use these for you, and hopefully these make sense as we finish. Titus, it's both in the book of Titus, the letter of Paul to Titus. Titus 1, 5-9 says, this is why I left you in Crete, that so you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant, quick-tempered, or drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. It goes on in chapter 2. But as for you, he's talking to Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Then he says, older men, this is what he's supposed to teach, older men are what? To be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love and steadfastness. He tells them very point blank, this is, what, this is what's consistent with godly men. You're to teach this. Older women. Likewise, are to be reverent in behavior. Not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God might not be reviled. Likewise, 
urge the younger men to be self-controlled. There's a lot that goes, you know, the one of the most hardest things of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. What is that? That's that's liberty. It's not just liberty, but what is it? It's 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 a it's it's in ourselves. It's to be personally responsible, so that no any that uh, anyway. So and and then show yourself in, a, in all respects to be a model of good works. See, just in this letter of Paul to Titus, there are three distinctions made. Did y'all notice this in this letter? The first, there's three distinctions made. One of them is this, and I'm going to give you all the words, all right? You're going to be on the screen. They're not on your notes, and I'm sorry, but I wasn't sure if I could, at that point in time if I could fit them. But it's the word presbyteros, presbyteros, which is the word that we get for elder. Elder of age, the elder of two people advanced in life, and elder of senior forefathers. Now, I want you to see this as we continue on. I want you to see this is, when we talk about elder, it's it's actually talking about a rank, okay? So I'm the older, uh, I'm the middle of three brothers, but I'm older than my younger brother, right? When it comes to, I'm older. Zach, you're a little older than me, okay? So you're the elder of my, in that sense, it's a rank. But it goes beyond that, okay? That's That's one way it's used, but not in these passages. It's not used in that way. This word in the first passage talks about the second part of this. It's a term of rank or office among the Jews, members of the great council of the Sanhedrin, because in early times the rulers of the people, judges, etc., were selected from elderly men, of those who in separate cities managed public affairs and administered justice among the Christians, those who presided over the assemblies or churches. The New Testament uses the term bishop, elders, and presbyters interchangeably, and it talks about the 24 members of the heavenly Sanhedrin. But that's presbyteros. It's talking about a very rank or a specific position. Okay. The second word, which is found in Titus 2, is the one for older men, which is presbytes. Presbytes, which means an old man, an aged man, ambassador. And what would he talk about? The one who speaks for the family usually is what? The head of the household, that kind of thing. That's really what it comes to. I know that today... A lot of people don't like to say, oh, the man's the head of the household. Let's keep that. Let's, everybody's even. And I understand that aspect, but I want you to understand that's a that was a, a responsibility that was a part of the head of that, that title. The other one is um, uh, presbytis or presbytis, which is an older woman, an aged woman. There are three distinctions that are made here. The words may have the same root, but there are specific distinctions that we can't overlook. Just as man and woman are made in the image of God, and we have the same root or beginning, not that we are God, but we are from Him, there's still a distinction made between us, isn't there? God is God, and we are not. We are His creation. He made us male and female, yet we bear His image equally. Man was created from the dust of the earth, and woman was created from the man. Yet man now comes forth from woman as well. Distinctions are everywhere. Being a man is not an office. It's a distinction that comes with responsibilities. Being a woman, you thought about Titus 2, is a distinction that comes with responsibilities. 
Every one of these things are very specific. In the same way, there are distinctions made in Titus. Yes, men and women are both made in the image of God. Yes, men and women equally are saved equally in Christ Jesus and heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. But yes, there is also a distinction between elder and older. Just because the root is similar does not make the implication and application the same. Just because we believe in the priesthood of all believers does not mean everyone can be an elder. The priesthood of all believers does not mean that all believers are mature. Mature doesn't always equate to just older. But older might mean elderly. But older doesn't always mean mature. In the same way, Scripture denotes and describes even the difference between elder and older. And let me be clear, all of us have a biblical responsibility to mature in the faith. And as we do, the fruit of the Spirit will be more evident. That's where maturity comes in. Maturity is not based upon how old we are. I mean, you can have a lot of life experiences, because but in, but in the kingdom of God, they might mean nothing but a pile of garbage. What did Paul say about his birthright? He said, I was all these things. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was circumcised on the eighth day. As regard to the law, Pharisee, a persecutor of the church. But in all these things, I consider them cow dung. That's really what it means. A pile of compared to knowing Christ and making him known. All of us have a biblical responsibility to mature in the faith. As we do, the fruit of the Spirit will be more evident. This responsibility is not for just pastors and elders, but it's for every believer. Let's be clear, older and elder are not the same thing when this passage of Scripture when it comes to the distinction between elder and older, women are excluded. In every example that's given from this, this distinction of elder. This does not mean that women do not have the responsibility in Christ Jesus, Jesus for teaching and mentoring and beyond. It doesn't mean that they can't ever teach. It means they're not an elder. It is just that the distinction between elder and older is given by God in His Word. And this is no uncommon occurrence. In fact, I told you, what did I do? I researched all of Paul's letters. So let me just say this very clearly as we finish up. Let's take his letters as an example. In Galatians, Philippians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, and Titus, Paul addresses the clergy lady distinction in some way or form. including prescriptive characteristics of those men who are to be elders and how the church is to treat them, as well as how the church is to represent itself as the bride of Christ. In First and Second Corinthians, Romans, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon, these distinctions are not particularly discussed. Romans is a letter that describes and prescribes various doctrines regarding the church, the people of God, salvation, and more. Ephesians talks about the doctrines of grace, salvation, the call of the church, unity, faith, and so forth. Colossians discusses a call to holy living for the local church, the family, and the church abroad. 
Philemon shares a testimony of love for Philemon, the church that meets with him, and for Onesimus, along with a call to care for this brother. He probably was a slave, a former slave. First and Second Corinthians, though, are jam-packed letters with multiple issues regarding failure to implement proper doctrine and so forth. And while there's no mention particularly of elders, we don't know if there were or not. But something that grabs my attention in particular is that Paul mentions sending Timothy to the church at Philippi, in Philippians. He talks about sending. In the same way, he also mentions the desire of Titus to go to the church at Corinth, along with another that's known for his skill in preaching the word of God. And when I look at that passage, it's interesting. What, did, what are two distinct letters? One that he wrote to Timothy, and he talks about setting apart elders, and this is what an elder is. He leaves Titus where? In Crete. So what? To, to get everything in order, set apart elders in every town. And for someone here, he's talking about even in 1 Corinthians of sending Titus. Titus wants to go. And they have all these problems. Y'all, y'all know the church. There was tons of problems in, in Corinth. See, both of these men were given charge in other letters to identify and appoint elders, which are which seems to be the norm and not the exception. We cannot legitimize another distinction or delegitimize this distinction for any reason. Doing so is just as abusive as authoritarianism, and it is just as simple as it prostitutes the will of God for all things. In doing so, one might believe he is living in freedom to Christ to the maximum, but what one does, does by removing these distinctions is not rebellions against authoritarianism. You're not, regor- you're not rebelling against the, the abuses of authority. What you're doing is, or some say, abusive patriarchy and the like. What happens is he sets himself up as an idol to himself. I am the standard now. And it's not what God said. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he points out these distinctions as ordained by Christ, and that in them we find true unity and purpose in Christ. And this is where we come together. Ephesians 4, and I'm going to finish with this this morning. you got to go just one ahead. He gave the apostles, Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers, we talked about this last week, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, who is Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let me share this with you this morning. I have not yet found anywhere in Scripture that it says that these things are to cease. In fact, I don't see any writings in throughout history that these things ever reach their pinnacle and no longer there are no longer needs for them. One day, one day, yes, no longer will we need to teach their neighbor to know the Lord, for they will all know. But I believe it will be when we see Jesus face to face. Because as the body of Christ, if the the local church, as the body of Christ matures, what happens? And we are obedient to make disciples of Christ. 
there's always going to be the need for those to be taught. There's always going to be the need for the body to come together and to do those things until he says it's over and all things are put under his feet. And for us, I want us to recognize that one abuse, if we're not careful, will pendulum swing us to the other ditch, which is another abuse in itself. And then the church doesn't function fully as God intended it. Now, I'll answer one more thing and I'm done. I'm sure so I'm done. Scripture tells us that there are to be as many as two or more prophesy in the church, right? To preach or do those things. My question comes up is, what if there is only one who is ready and prepared or able to do that at that moment? Does that one person remain quiet because there's not two or more? Absolutely not. As we continue to grow, we continue to grow and do those things, God continues to, to bless us and to equip us and to train us for those things. And that immaturity, yes, we, in, in, not immaturity, but in maturity, what do we do? We, we teach and we do those things. Yes, our gathering can be very different from it is today in another year. My prayer is that it is. But God will use it as we will honor Him and what He has set forth. And that, that's the key here. Not throwing the baby out with the bathwater just because of the potentiality of an abuse. That's right. The reason why cops pull you over for not stopping at a red light. There's a potentiality you could kill someone or commit a crime. We don't need to throw everything out because of it. We need to just honor God with at where He's at, and to seek to do so. If I become, if I get to the place where I become such a turd, I'm gonna say it. If I'm a turd, you need to tell me, brothers, sisters, you're being a turd. My wife has no problem telling me that. I'm glad. She'll probably tell me later. But I'm gonna say this: as brothers and sisters in Christ, we ought to be able to say. Brother, you're wrong here. Now, there's a difference between us discussing things regarding doctrine. But if I, if my mouth is, if I'm cursing every five words and I get up here to praise God with the same lips, you need to call me out on it. My attitude is hateful toward another. How dare I leave an, How dare I try to leave an offering at the feet of God when, when, when my heart is not right? Call me out on it. That's how we ought to be in the body of Christ. And so as we do that, let us glorify Him in us. Thank you for listening to Setting the Record Straight. Join us on Facebook at the Reconstructionist Radio Discussion Group. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to listen to all of our podcasts and to download our free audiobooks.